Welcome to the Sunday Times Politics Weekly, where we explore the big political stories of the moment. I'm Mike Siluma, and thanks for joining us. The big story this week, of course, has been one of corruption, highlighted by claims by former ESCOM CEO Andrew Gerata of how corruption has brought the power utility to its knees. To help us understand the nature and extent of corruption in our country and what can be done possibly to turn back the tide, we joined on the Politics Weekly this week by Dawson Naidu, who's the Executive Secretary of the Council for the Advancement of the Constitution, as well as uh, Wayne Duvenage, who's the CEO of uh, AUTA, which is the organization undoing tax abuse. With immediate effect. When people saw and I quote, in two years' time, Eskim's problems will be a thing of the past. People won't even remember load shedding. Unquote. They put saliva on the paper. I'm in charge. That's why these fools are running around here. I'm in charge. And then they share that zone. Point of order, Jefferson. Order, Jefferson. Point of order. The ruling party by point of order. Must step aside within 30 days. No, I'm not going to apologize. He has no brains whatsoever. So the NC president was sabotaged again yesterday? Well, sabotage, that can be This is not a shit. We welcome both of you, gentlemen. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mike. Mm. Uh, when shall I start with you? W- were you surprised or shocked by the revelations uh, made by Andrew Gerata in terms of what has been happening at, at, at ESCOM? Not at all. Um, I think it's been, uh, it's been you know, well understood that the extent of corruption runs deep in ESCOM. I mean, it's it's been going on for many years. You just have to look at the two big project builds of Madupi and Kusile, who were both budgeted around 70 to 80 billion rand, uh, are both well over time and, and nearly three times that price. And those uh, projects have been fraught with, with, with corruption right from uh, Chancellor House's investment in Hitachi uh, before those contracts were awarded. Uh, but, but right now on the operating side of things, uh, you know, when when Brian Mulefid made the comment of look, we don't want to own the bakery, we just want to buy the bread. This is the tied collieries to Eskom. You you can see exactly the agenda. You give away those mines or you sell those mines uh, to vested interests, and then you start paying for coal at uh, at market related uh, prices, international market related prices. And our view has always been, you know, if you consume the entire content of the bakery, you better own the bakery. Uh, but this is strategy that just was not well thought through. But we think the political intent or the agendas that were behind some of those decisions back then are now leading to the problems that we have. And then you get into the uh, the, the transport contracts. Um, it's just a minefield of gross maladministration, which opens the door for gross abuse and corruption and it is systemic now, right the way through to almost every level within uh, within Eskom, uh, and it is shocking. So if you just look at the primary energy costs, how it's gone up over the last fifteen years, get you get an extent, uh, get an idea of the extent of, of of what corruption and maladministration is costing us there. So we're not surprised at at uh, Andre Derater's allegations. The sad thing is that he is tackled, the man is being tackled, and not the ball. Uh, and government should have seized the ball and the opportunity and said, okay, you know, you've got ev- not maybe not evidence, but you've got intelligence, you've got information. 
let's go and get to the bottom of this. Instead of doing that, they enter into a flat spin and start playing the man and trying to castigate him. And that's just the tactics of a very guilty uh, uh, party or guilty players in the, in the, in the scheme. Mm. Lawson, I'd like for you to come in here. Wayne says that corruption has become systemic at, at, at ESCOM. Would you say it's systemic in society broadly? Well, I think, uh, Mike, we only have to look at the reports of the State Capture Commission to see how deeply embedded uh, corruption is within various sectors of our society. Uh, I'll come back to the issue of society in a moment, but uh, it's quite clear that those uh, those criminal networks are still very, very much in place, despite all the evidence we heard from the Zonda Commission and their reports. We saw it during the COVID pandemic with the PPE procurement, uh, that those net- networks were able to kick into effect very, very quickly and easily uh, to uh, exploit that uh, that opportunity. And we're seeing it being, uh, you know, be- being more deeply entrenched in, in um, entities like ESCOM, as well as other state-owned entities, across uh, Transnet and the like. Uh, and it, it points to the fact that we haven't dealt with the root causes of those criminal underworlds uh, and the... Uh, and the way that they operate, we've, you know, uh, I think to a certain extent, the Zonda Commission scratched the surface of some of those issues. Uh, but there needs to be a lot, a, a lot more investigative work to be done uh, in order to expose uh, and uh, extract those people out of these uh, these entities, so they can, you know, begin the process of rehabilitation and starting to function properly. But that's uh, clearly what this all shows us is that there's a really long way to go. Uh, in being able to do that. You know, mm. I think the longer that we have these sort of levels of, of systemic corruption uh, uh, with levels of impunity in place, uh, the, the more tolerant that we are likely to become of certain levels of corruption and the harder it is going to be in the longer term uh, to eliminate corruption from our midst. So that, that's, a, that, that, that's a sustainability threat uh, to the effectiveness of the state but also the effectiveness of, of the private sector in South Africa. Mm-hmm. When is there a, 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 an indication, from a, just from a rents and cents point of view, of what corruption is costing us as a country? It's difficult to, to measure it, but I guess one can put together uh, some scenarios uh, uh, to, to get an understanding. Let, let me put it this way. You know, we're spending about 200 billion rand a year on infrastructure uh, development. If you look at the various budgets over the uh, over the last uh, 12, 15 years, um, and our our experience on in on infrastructure spend, talking roads, yeah, talking hospitals, schools, RDP houses, is that for every road we build and pay for, we could have got three, sometimes more, because there's so many middlemen in the deals that are being done. And when I say every road, maybe 80% of them, but a large percentage of them, uh, uh, houses as well, uh, uh, clinics, hospitals, schools, with the amount of corruption and, and whistleblower information that we're getting, it is rife from uh, provincial down to local government level and uh, and up at the national level as well, uh, where we see uh, what was going on, as Lawson said, on the PPE stuff. But prior to that, with uh, Zwilliam Kize and the digital vibes, this stuff is happening 
all the time across all sectors. And if uh, we take a look at it from that point of view and the, and the maladministration, the misspending, the, you know, the, the fruitless and wasteful expenditure that comes out, the Auditor General's reports, I, would, I would, don't think I'm going to be very wrong if, uh, if, if we say that a trillion rand has been lost to corruption and gross maladministration, in other words, wasteful expenditure due to a lack of proper systems uh, and, 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 and the capabilities uh, that are required to run government efficiently uh, over the last uh, 10 to, to, to 15 years, at least a trillion rand. In other words, um, almost, uh, or not quite, uh, about two-thirds of what we have as a total treasury allocation for one year. And it's probably, uh, you know, if we go do the rands and cents and you start adding in what is lost just to, through incompetence. Uh, and people people make money through incompetence. So so it's part of the corruption chain. This maladministration is, is part of it. It's probably double that. Uh, and it'll be a good exercise to do, uh, obviously using some, some very good criteria to do the analysis and the assumptions. Uh, it's a lot. And and I you know when we look at what what we have as a, as a country the money that comes in and not even getting into local government yet uh, we have enough uh, to run this country very well mind you and and deal with the social wage issue and and all the uh, uh, systemic challenges we have but we don't have enough when a large percentage of that is lost mm. lost to corruption and maladministration. Mm-hmm. Lawson, did you know one of the questions that 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 get asked sometimes is is whether corruption is getting worse or whether it is it is becoming exposed more. You know, I mean, Wayne has just mentioned the 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 the, the contribution of whistleblowers. You know, in 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 exposing corruption. But where where are we at? How do we gauge? Uh, the, the, you know the, 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 our, our current state in, in, in as far as uh, corruption is concerned. You know, is is it getting worse, or do we? Is it just that we're getting to know about it because it is being spoken about more? Um, look, I think that's a that's a difficult question to answer with any sort of confidence. Uh, I think there's certainly greater awareness about corruption. Uh, there's greater exposure of corruption by uh, by whistleblowers despite the continuing uh, lack of effective protection for whistleblowers. Uh, there's been a lot more exposures by uh, uh, the, the media fraternity. Uh, so we're, we're much more aware of what is happening. Um, you know, whether it's greater than it was five years ago, I think it's difficult to say. Uh, but, um, you know, we have almost as a baseline or a benchmark what came out of the Zondo Commission again uh, to give us an indication of where we were at a particular point in time. And, you know, if, if we simply take the, the recent uh, allegations that uh, Andre Dureta made regarding ESCOM, uh, one would probably say that in, in that space it's getting worse because the level of extraction is, 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 appears to be that much worse than it was before. Um, and I think this, you know, this speaks to the issue of the capacity of the state to really turn, uh, turn the tide against corruption. Uh, which is not to want to sound uh, overly p- pessimistic about that, because I think there have been some, uh, there has been some progress in that regard with the establishment, for example, of the investigating directorate in the NPA, um, you know, greater resourcing of law enforcement agencies and the like. Uh, but it's it, it's a slow process to begin to see the results of those endeavours, and I think we, it's still going to be some time before we see, you know, the the visible results of of an increased focus on on combating corruption. 
Mm. Wayne, the, the, you know, the, the, the perception that, that, that one often uh, gets is that it is the ANC government that is the source of corruption, you know, in, in, in the country. Is that a correct perception? Uh, what about business, for example? Because in, even in the state capture uh, report, you know, many businesses are mentioned as being party to what transpired, you know, uh, in those years. Absolutely. Uh, corruption, as the common saying goes, is the other side. Uh, business is the other side of the corruption coin. You have to have business to to participate in the tendering and the uh, contracting and so forth. So there's no doubt that business, but some very often those businesses are family and friends uh, of people connected in inside the system, inside the ruling party's control of where the spending is signed off and takes place. So. So first and foremost, you've got to ask yourself, well, who holds the checkbook? Well, government holds the checkbook. Who in government uh, has control over the money that's spent? Well, it is the ruling party and through its cater deployment where those where those individuals have been appointed in these positions of power, uh, where decisions are made, contracts are given. I mean, we've, we've, we've got a number of projects on the go right now in the higher education department, right down into the CETAs, to NESFAS. Uh, it's just systemic. It's bad. It's, uh, you cannot believe. And how they set it up is through connected people setting up businesses, taking over small businesses, using those those uh, uh, business license numbers, uh, and they've got no experience getting the contracts at three, four, five times inflated prices, and then bringing in specialists uh, as contractors to do the job. That's the t- typical modus operandi. So it is first and foremost uh, an ethical issue. Uh, with a ruling party, so it is an ANC issue. It is uh, it is a political party, unfortunately, that has, over the last fifteen to twenty years, uh, allowed a, a corrupt mindset and psyche to permeate. So right the way through. So you know, f- fifteen years ago, municipalities were were washing their own face, able to uh, you know uh, clean the water, bef- uh, the wastewater treatment plants, manage their cities. Well, now, now they can't. They just can't do it because they've run out of money because it doesn't get to where it should. Treasury allocations to uh, indigent ha- household electrification, 80% of it in Paris research is lost, lost mm. to the system. So the, the poor suffer the most. And uh, the long and short of the answer to that is, it's first and foremost the ruling party, and then obviously the connected cronies who set up the businesses. And there are also some big businesses, by the way. We've seen the likes of KPMG, McKinsey, ABB. Uh, the list is long. They are they get caught up in the in this trap, and they pay the price for it. Uh, sad thing is, nobody in business is held accountable. We want to see those directors, uh, you know, put behind bars and. And nobody's continuing and carrying on uh, uh, all the way to the end when it comes to uh, people involved on the business side and on government side. Impunity reigns uh, supreme and uh, it just, the feeding trough is, just gets bigger and bigger and we are losing uh, too much money now. Mm. Lawson, how do we have these kinds of levels of, of impunity when we've got a criminal justice system in place? Well, you know, uh, again, it's a question of the capacity of the of that system, uh, the capacity of the various checks and balances within our constitutional framework, uh, which were, you know, seriously eroded uh, during the Zuma years, as the uh, again, the Zondo Commission reports, uh, uh, you know, highlight. Uh, and as I said, you know, the process of rebuilding those institutions is taking time. 
uh, you know, and there's still a lot of work to be done, for example, within SAPS, uh, which often gets un, you know, uh, uh, undermentioned in, in, in this discussion, because it's not just a question of the National Prosecuting Authority, which is where the focus is most of the time, but they're at the end of a, of a chain of events that take place within the law enforcement sector. So the investigation's got to be done by SAPS or the Hawks, or, or now in the case of the uh, of state capture cases, in the case of the uh, investigating director. So it comes to the NPA at the end of that process. And if the evidence is not there, it makes the NPA's job very difficult to successfully prosecute those cases. So it's a real question of, of um uh, of rebuilding the capacity of those institutions, which, as I say, is underway. Uh, but also, I think, you know, very importantly is, uh, is the role of parliament in all of this. In parliament, you know, taking its, its constitutional responsibility seriously in terms of exercising effective oversight over the executive, as well as organs of state, which include state-owned enterprises. And parliament has largely failed in that regard and continues to fail in that regard. So, you know, with the example not being set at the top that, you know, we are, we, uh, that the institution of parliament is going to demand accountability is not going to allow a culture of imp impunity to prevail, uh, to, to make sure that people uh, account and are held accountable uh, for, their, uh, uh, for their actions, their mismanagement and the, uh, and, the, and the criminal deeds. So it really does need to start at the very top and set an example because it's about uh, you know, uh, setting uh, the agenda for the political world that this is something that we will not tolerate in a democratic South Africa and we're going to work together to eliminate it. Now, there are various, uh, you know, attempts to try and do this, including with the uh, adoption by uh, by cabinet of the National Anti-Corruption Strategy, uh, having uh, the president having now put in place the National Anti-Corruption Advisory Committee. Uh, but you know the, the, those various initiatives need to need to work in a cooperative manner within a set time frame and be supported by the requisite political will uh, from the very top office in the country, which is that of the president, to ensure that these things happen, that they're taken seriously, uh, and that they happen quickly. And mm. th that's something where I think we there's still some uh, some progress to be made. Yeah, you know, listen, you're talking about the will. Sometimes, you know, when one looks at the, the levels of corruption we're dealing with and the deployment of violence and intimidation, even murder, you know, the murder of, for example, whistleblowers and that kind of thing. I mean, the, the other time, I think at, uh, even in companies, you know, at uh, Richards Bay Minerals, for example, uh, one of the managers there was killed, you know, possibly because of syndicates that want to get in and feed the trough, as, as Wayne puts it. Do you think as a, as a society we've got the stomach to take the fight to criminals, you know, in, in that sense. You know, one, one here thinks about, you know, I don't know if you saw the movie The Untouchables, what it took to fight the mafia in the, in the United States, mm. that it can be very costly, even for individuals and for public office bearers, etc. Do you think we have the stomach to, to take the fight to, to, to the criminals in South Africa? I think we do. I think the majority of South Africans want to do the right thing, want to uh, assist in, in eliminating these levels of uh, uh, of corruption, of exploitation of, of the public purse. Uh, but, you know, as you use the example of whistleblowers, whistleblowers are afraid to come forward because they don't get the protection. They get victimized uh, in the workplace. They get harassed, intimidated. And, uh, you know, as you've given examples, some people have been killed 
for simply blowing the whistle on on, on corruption. So unless those uh, you know that broader society feels that they had the full support and protection of the state to work collaboratively in, in eliminating corruption, people are going to be afraid of coming forward, afraid of speaking out. And, uh, and that, that's the kind of culture that we need to turn around to say that uh, that's why this issue of political will is so important, that people need to be confident that if they come forward, uh, they're going to, A, they're going to be taken seriously. And we've seen the example you know, just last week with the Andrew Derater, as we started at, at the beginning of this conversation, that when he's made claims, whatever one one may think of the the manner in which he did so, the response to that has been has has really exposed uh, the lack of political will to follow this up. Uh, you know, Andre is being blamed, for example, not reporting it to law enforcement agencies. He says he has. Uh, what does the minister do? The minister says that the board must investigate. Now, the board is probably the least equipped body uh, to investigate the kinds of uh, claims and allegations that Andre Dereiter made. Uh, so, again, it exposes the lack of political will to find effective solutions to this rather than simply going through the motions of saying, well, well, we're doing something, we've referred it to the board. Mm. Hey, Wayne, before we get too, too depressed about the, the scenario that, that, that we, we, we're focusing on, what, would you say there are any low-hanging fruits that, uh, that we could pick to begin to deal with, you know, with, with, with the scourge? Well, you know, um, you know, to Lawson's point and what we what we're saying, the 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 will by civil society and the various uh, NGOs that are doing a lot of work in this space is there, uh, but you know it can be too little. So the the the, the ball is big, it's rolling, and and we're, and we're picking up pieces to try and uh, stop the rot. But if it if it's if it's gathering more and more momentum. Uh, I, I don't think this is difficult to fix, but it does require the political will. So let's let's get back to the earlier question of, of Parliament. Very uh, true what what Lawson says. Why is that? Well, MPs are beholden to the the political masters, and uh, they're not going to vote against. So it becomes a lame duck, uh, and uh, and we've seen that. Okay, you know, various committees, lots of evidence put there. They've got some powers. They've got some oversight. Uh, but very little happens. Uh, we need electoral reform to bring about change. And we've seen our government has dragged their feet on that, missed all the deadlines, uh, uh, deliberately so as far as we're concerned, to make sure that 2024 does not have a significant change in the in the Electoral Act, which is required from, from a constitutional point of view. So it'll start again, and there'll be another five years of mess, probably. Um, the low-hanging fruit, really, is for me, and we look at Rwanda, and we look at. I'm not saying their system is, is 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 perfect, but systemic corruption was rampant. Three years later, it is tidied up, uh, despite the fact that uh, yes, is, is it a, is it a free and fair democracy? Um, so there are many examples of you can fix corruption. You can nip in the bud. The longer we wait, the more entrenched it becomes. We need right from the top the moral courage and the backbone by a president to say, not on our watch, we're going to do everything. We're going to, I mean, if he just put 10 billion rand into the investigative directorate, the NPA, special corruption courts, uh, uh, you're beefed it up with the best investigative uh, uh, forensics uh, skills from around the world, if need be, and said, go and fetch, just go and fetch, stop this. Uh, that 10 billion rand we will save in the first month. 
of lost money to this country. Just think about it. Uh, so, but so that's what I would do. Why is he not thinking along those lines? Why are we not really supercharging the criminal justice system? Because corruption is the problem. It is it is what is dragging us down and killing our economy and breaking our SOEs. That's not a rocket science decision. But to do that, you've got to demonstrate it. It's a leadership issue. We do not have the leadership to drive the real big change in fighting corruption in this country. We thought we had it when Ramaphosa came into power on the back of an anti-corruption ticket and the Tumamina uh, 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 you know, uh, campaign. Well, I'm afraid it's been a damp squib. So uh, how else do we do this? How else do you start that with the allocating of the funds to the right place to fix this problem? It can only come from leadership at the top. The country will get behind those type of statements. But while you don't do that, I'm afraid it's going to take a long time. Hopefully, uh, 15 months time, 2024 brings about some change. Now, mm. are we are we hopeful? Are we hopeful? Do we think it's going to happen? Not with the way we see the politics playing out in coalitions uh, and the uh, you know the posturing and the political meddling. It's we've got some work to do to make sure that all the people who are not voting because they're now fed up and they just have nothing else to vote for, must vote. We've got a campaign to drive as this country to make sure that everybody, the youth, get out there and vote in 2024 and vote for change, but do it in a way that's responsible. So we do not have graft-seeking, rent-seeking uh, mm. uh, uh, politicians uh, in positions of power. It's We're on a very, very tough course. And I'm hopeful. I mean, this country's got... This country's got uh, the prosperity potential like you cannot believe from tourism to industry to everything. We're just punching so well below our weight because we have allowed systemic uh, systems and administration just to collapse to make way for corruption. So we can do this, but we're going to have to do it with a, with, with a lot of effort and work by our civil society to hold government's feet to the fire. But I just think they're getting brazen now. They just actually couldn't care the the type of behavior we're seeing. It's it's, it's mm. quite frightening. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Lawson, are, are you as uh, just to just before we close out? Are you as as uh, optimistic uh, as Wayne is about our prospects? Um, yes, I am. I mean, I think we will come through this. Uh, you know, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be it's uh, it's going to be a hard slog to to get where we want to be. And, uh, you know, uh, but I think if we begin to work collaboratively, if we begin to see the political world from the very top levels, uh, that the rest of society is ready to to, uh, to roll up their sleeves and, and contribute towards uh, making this country what it ought to be. Uh, but I think, you know, just to come back to a point uh, uh, that was made just now, as, you know, it's this lack of urgency of dealing with the issue. You know, if we look at the, our greatest thing uh, by the Financial Action Task Force, for example, if you actually study the technical grounds on which we were deemed to be non-compliant, uh, they're really around issues of the capacity of the state to combat money laundering uh, and terrorism financing and the like. And uh, yes, a government rushed and put the relevant laws into place, but the FATF were not convinced that we uh, have the capacity and the ability to actually implement that. And I think that is symptomatic of the kind of problems that we face in this broad law enforcement space to deal with this sort of, you know, uh, uh, myriad of, of issues, the state capture, corruption, money laundering, uh, and the like. And, you know, the 
Uh, and, and, you know, probably the biggest threat to, to us now is that of organized crime, which we're seeing in various sectors of our, uh, of our economy that, that are taking root. And uh, so it needs a very deliberate attempt. And, uh, you know, uh, it does need the resources. Uh, and I think government is starting to put those resources there, but it needs to happen much more quickly. Mm. Well, that, that seems to be all the time we have on the Sunday Times Politics Weekly this time. Uh, and I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Wayne Duvenage, who's the CEO of the organization Undoing Tax Abuse, or AUTA, as well as uh, Lawson Naidu, who's the Executive Secretary of the Council for the Advancement of the Constitution. Uh, we appreciate your time, gentlemen. I'm Mike Siluma. Until next time, do stay safe, stay blessed, and let's do good for our country.